All right, everybody else, if you are going to be here with me today, you can turn to Revelation chapter 11. You can meet me there as we uh, continue our walk through the book of Revelation. Revelation 11 today. And I am very hopeful, I won't promise this, but I'm very hopeful that next Sunday we will be able to let you know what our reopening plans are here at Meadowbrook Church. We have spent the week getting our heads around it, trying to figure stuff out, and so uh, we don't have a set date yet because the province hasn't given us that. We're assuming it's going to be around uh, June 20th, so that's just a few weeks away, and so the good news is one way or another that we are going to be able to gather together soon, and so we are figuring out a way to do that, and uh, and how that's all going to work. And so I am very hopeful that next Sunday we'll be able to lay that out for you. Uh, if we can't get the details together, it might be one more week. But that is what we are working hard towards. And Pastor Xavier's been working hard on that this week for us and some of the details and logistics of that. And so that is where we are going. And so we are so excited to gather together again and to be with you all again. And uh, we are grateful that we live in a time where we have been able to connect in this way a hundred years ago with Spanish flu. And they they didn't even have phones. And so when stuff was shut down, everyone was just in their house and they weren't connected to anybody. So we are grateful that we have this technology that allows us to do church together in this way, but we are counting down the days till we can gather back together again. And Lord willing, that will be very, very soon. So as we are going through uh, Revelation, we're calling this series Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse just means revelation. And so we're talking about Revelation a few verses at a time and just getting our heads around, what does this mean for us? And we're not designing desiring to master this book per se, but we are desiring to hear what is the Spirit saying to us through his word. And so as we are going through this, our plan, I think, is that uh, we will go through Revelation for a couple more weeks, and then we're going to move into summer mode. We're going to shift gears as we can gather back together again. We'll take a break. Revelation is awesome, but it is dense. It's a, it's a thick and heavy book. And so we'll take a summer, we'll go a little lighter over the summer months, and then we will pick it up again in the fall. So by Christmas time, we will have finished the whole book of Revelation. You will all be experts in it, and we will all be very, very smart when it comes to this book. We'll never read it the same way again. And so we'll do this for a couple more weeks. And as we jump in today, I was originally going to do Revelation 10 and 11 both together last week. And as I started that ambitious project, I realized, oh, we're going to be here for four hours going through this verse by verse. And so I broke it up a little bit. So we did chapter 10 last week. We'll go through chapter 11 today. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again is that as we move through Revelation, as we get more and more into the book, and as we're starting to get into some of the passages that we're in now and that we'll be in for the next few weeks, it starts to get uh, a lot more speculative about what does this mean? What does the symbolism mean? What does this beast represent? What does this scroll represent? It starts to get a lot more uh, open to interpretation. And so when you're reading through the first part of Revelation, you, you, know, you read through the letters to the seven churches and you go, well, there's some, some prayer and some work to do in figuring out what does that mean for us today. But the meaning seems to be pretty clear. And then we start to get into Revelation where symbols are going to start flying at us like crazy. And John doesn't always tell 
tell us what these things are. Sometimes he's very clear and says, this thing that you just saw means this, but a lot of times he doesn't do that. And so when we go through it and we come along part of these, uh, as we touch on some of these things, I'm going to be telling you what I think they could be, but I'm going to also share some other interpretations at times. And we're just going to be okay with that because if it was really important for us to know for sure what something means, John would just tell us and sometimes does. And so if he doesn't say clearly what this beast represents, we're certainly going to talk about it, but we're not going to die on the hill of it because if it's not clear, we're just going to be okay with it not being clear. And we're going to pray into it and wrestle with it and discuss possibilities, but we're going to be okay with the mystery of Revelation to a certain extent. And so as well, and I've said this throughout Almost all of the imagery that we find in Revelation has an Old Testament connection. Almost all of it has a very clear Old Testament connection. And so we're going to jump back to the Old Testament a fair bit. We're going to keep doing that through this series because if we see something in Revelation that has an Old Testament connection, by understanding that connection, by understanding what God was saying thousands of years earlier, that's actually going to help us understand what John is trying to get across to us in Revelation 2,000 years ago. And so we always look to Scripture to interpret scripture. We don't ever take one book entirely on its own. We believe that all of scripture is God-breathed, and so one of the best ways to understand Revelation is also to measure it against other parts of scripture and see what that does in helping us understand and comprehend what this book is all about. And so let's take a look at our text. We're going to be, again, in Revelation 11. Uh, so originally, I was going to do it all last week, and it was Angel Scrolls and Witnesses, so we called last week's sermon that. This is Angel Scrolls and Witnesses is part two. So starting in verse one of chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So as we uh, touch on this passage, this chapter today, uh, we're actually about halfway through Revelation at this point. There's 22 chapters. They're of different lengths, so I don't know if we're exactly halfway through. But in terms of the number of chapters, we're halfway through. And so, again, we'll take a bit of a break over the summer and pick it up again in the fall. But we're doing great, guys. Good for you. We're holding on through a tricky, tricky, tricky passage of Scripture. And we are uh, starting to see and, and seeking to hear what is the Spirit saying to us. And so the chapter starts with some measuring going on. Verses 1 and 2, I was given a read like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And so again, almost everything, all this, this imagery that we see throughout Revelation has an Old Testament connection. So if we can make the Old Testament connection, we can maybe hear uh, what is going on in this whole new thing that John is seeing, uh, everything that is going on there. So uh, anyone reading in the first century would have heard this story. John says, I had to go measure the temple. And they would have said, oh, Ezekiel had to do that. That's a very clear connection to Ezekiel chapter 40 through 43. Ezekiel was was a prophet in a time of captivity, in a time of exile. Israel had been invaded by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. The Babylonians had destroyed the temple. They had taken over Jerusalem, the holy city, and they had taken the Israelites and they had scattered them amongst the Babylonian empire. So while in exile, Ezekiel starts getting words from the Lord. And the gist of Ezekiel's ministry is basically, one day God will bring us back to the promised land. We are being judged for our sin, but one day he will restore us. God God had promised Israel very clearly that there were blessings involved in being his people, and one of them was a holy land, was a land to call their own. But God had also warned them that if you worship idols and if you follow other gods and if you turn away from me, I will remove you from the holy land. I will send nations in that will kick you out. And that's exactly what happened. After warning, after warning, after warning about coming back to the law, Israel still refused to do it. So eventually the Babylonians, the Assyrians come in and Israel is in exile. They lose the promised land. But Ezekiel's ministry was to say, even though we are in exile, even though God is dealing with us in our sins, he will restore us. He will bring us back. And so in Ezekiel 40 through 43, Ezekiel has this vision. He's in exile, but in this vision, he is taken to Jerusalem by this angelic type uh, creature, and then the angel, not Ezekiel himself, but the angel measures out this temple. And, and there's great detail given of this wall is this long, and this gate is here, and there's a room over here for that. Uh, it's really, it's quite a long passage, and there's a point when you're reading through it where you're like, all right, I get it. There's another wall, and it's this big. All right. It goes into just dr dramatic detail of what this temple is going to be like. Now, why that's important is because as Ezekiel is seeing this vision, there is no temple. The temple had been destroyed. There was no temple at all. And so it is a vision of something to come. 
And in the vision, this temple is there, this temple is restored. And then at the end of Ezekiel, the glory of God comes back and fills the temple yet again, just like it had in Solomon's day. The glory of God comes back and, and God makes his home with Israel again. And so the message of it was that, first of all, there will be a temple again, Israel. Even though your temple has been destroyed, there will be a temple rebuilt, and there would be when they come back. That's Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. But much more than that, the main part of that is Ezekiel saying, essentially, Israel, although you are in captivity, although you have been kicked out of the Holy Land, although you have lost the temple, although you have lost Jerusalem, that God has not forgotten you and his glory will rest with you again. That's the most important part. It's not so much about the building. It's about the glory of God will be among you again in the Holy Land. God will restore you and he will, he will come back to you. The glory of God will be with his people yet again. You're not seeing it now while you're in exile, but God will do that again. And he did. The temple would be restored. And so that's what's going on in Ezekiel's time. So Ezekiel, in his lifetime, had seen the temple destroyed and then gets this prophetic vision from God saying the temple will be restored and the glory of God will come back. Now John, in his lifetime, also lived through the temple of Jerusalem being destroyed. This time it was the Romans. The Romans came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took down the temple. And so they both men had gone through a similar season where the temple of God in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so when John is told, hey, measure out this temple again, again, anyone in the first century would have went, oh, kind of like Ezekiel. We've seen this happen already. And what was the most important part of Ezekiel's message? It was the glory of God will rest among the people again. And we're going to see that in Revelation as well, that uh, even by the end of Revelation, that God will make his home among his people. And Revelation will actually say at the end that there is no temple in eternity. There, there is no need for a building when we are face-to-face -face with God. You don't need a building to go to to meet with God because you're just going to be face-to-face -face with God in eternity. It's not going to be necessary to have a place where you gather together to meet him because he's just going to be there. And we have known that already in the new covenant that we don't need to come to a building to experience the presence of God. We can experience him everywhere. We've learned this in the last year, uh, maybe more than any other time in our life, that as much as we love coming together, it's coming together as the people of God that is important. There's nothing special about this geographical area. The only thing that's special about it, it's the place where the people can gather. And as the people of God gather, that is church. And that can happen in this room, and that can happen in a living room, and that can happen on a Zoom call, and it can happen through a screen. We've learned lots of things about that in this past year. And so as John has this vision of the temple, again, there is no temple at this time. The temple has been destroyed at this time in his life, just like it had been in Ezekiel's life. But the message, the connection is the same, is that a day is coming when the glory of God will be here. And revelation is actually going to unfold and not even in a, a building. It's not even necessary for that. Uh, we can meet with God anywhere. And in eternity, we're not going to need a temple because we're just going to see God. He's going to be right there. We'll be face to face with him. And so we won't have to worry about that. So some would believe that 
this part of Revelation is a prophecy that there will be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem again. There isn't a temple there now. Uh, right now, the, the, the Temple Mount area is controlled by the Muslims. They have the mosque there, the Dome on the Rock. And so some believe that this means that before the end comes, before Jesus returns, that the temple will literally be rebuilt again. And that certainly is valid. Uh, there, there are good reasons to believe that. But I think the bigger message of the book of Revelation is that ultimately a temple won't be required. And so when uh, John is talking about, you know, measure the temple, but the Gentiles are going to come in and they're going to trample on the holy city, again, that was happening in that time. That was what the Romans were doing. They had invaded and they had taken over. And so he is, he is uh, you know, being talked to about this time uh, that, that was being lived out. There was this time when the Gentiles had come in in John's lifetime. They had taken over the temple. They had taken over the city. But God still measures out the worshipers. Who belongs to him? The worshipers are kept safe. Even as the Romans invaded, uh, it wasn't the end of Judaism. It wasn't the end of Christianity. Uh, God has protected his people, even when the Gentiles come in and start uh, tearing things down. So there's some dates and numbers that start to show up in this passage. And this is where, again, I've said this before in this series. Um, when it comes to Revelation, it can be very tricky when people start picking and choosing, this part's literal, this part's a metaphor, this part's literal, this part's a metaphor, this part's literal. Uh, it's really inconsistent, and it tends to fall into, just because we're human, I'll take it literally when it suits my purposes, and I'll take it metaphorically when it doesn't. And so it tends to be like, well, if this fits my narrative of what I think is supposed to happen in the end times or whatever, then I'll take it literally or metaphorically, whatever works for me best. And I just find that to be a very inconsistent approach to Bible study. I think as we we approach Revelation, we generally need to understand it either as a literal book or as a metaphor, which does not mean it's any less true. But, you know, as we go through it, you've picked this up from me already, I think it's really hard to hold to it as everything is absolutely literal that's going to happen. That doesn't mean it's less true. But when you start getting into numbers and timings and different things, um, you know, dates and times, there are some who would believe, yes, it's exactly this, that there will be exactly 42 months and exactly 1,260 days and exactly uh, three and a half years. But I don't think we have to do that. And when we're using scripture to interpret scripture, there are certain things like the return of Christ where I would say, yes, literal, because we see that multiple other places in scripture. Is there going to be a rough end times? Yes, because we see that other places in scripture. But when it starts to get to the specifics of certain things, uh, you know, some people would read chapter 11 and say there will be exactly 42 months of this, but next week we're going to get into chapter 12, which includes a great big dragon flying across the sky. Well, that's obviously a metaphor. That's a, a metaphor for Satan. Well, why did you switch gears there, right? Why did you say literal, literal metaphor, literal, literal metaphor? And so I tend to not put too much literal emphasis on these numbers, and, and that is why. And, and partly because they also just fit in really nicely. So 42 months uh, is roughly 1,260 days, which is about three and a half years. And three and a half years is about half of the perfect seven. And so we've talked about seven a lot in Revelation. I won't dig in it, into it too much here. But in the Bible, seven, especially in Revelation, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And so sometimes numbers show up that aren't quite seven or are half of seven. And seven's just so perfect that when it says seven years, uh, I don't think we need to lean on that as seven literal years necessarily. It's probably 
probably just means the number of years until the timing of God is perfect. And so as we are walking through Revelation, uh, we're in this, this seven-year period, and in the first half of the seven years, three and a half years, which is half of the perfect seven, we have these two witnesses who come, and they come witnessing, they come testifying, they come prophesying to the world. And there's also a few Old Testament passages, I had them up there on the screen there, uh, from Daniel and from 1 Kings, where three years or three years and a bit is used, again, as a symbolic number that just represents trial, tribulation, difficulty, that there was famine in the land for a little over three years, that when Daniel's talking about a time, times, and half a time, it's probably meaning the same thing, which is not a literal number as much as just a time of struggle, a time of tribulation. And so in this difficult time, uh, again, John was living it out. The Romans had invaded. The temple was gone. There was, you know, violence in the city, and there was a lot of hopelessness. The persecution against Christians was increasing. And there is this word given about these witnesses who will come, and during this time of difficulty and tribulation, they will be the ones proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so we learn a little bit about this in verse 3 through 6. I'll appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth in the Bible is the clothing of mourning and repentance. It is, if a prophet is wearing sackcloth, it's because they are calling Israel to repent, to holiness, to come back to the Lord. They are, these witnesses are, the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. These guys got superpowers, right? Man, they can do a lot of stuff. I can't do any of those things. And so, again... What's the possible Old Testament connection here? There's a few different things. And so these guys come. When enemies come against them, fire comes and destroys them. That sounds like somebody in the Old Testament. Uh, prophesying to shut up the heavens for three and a half years. That sounds like somebody in the Old Testament. The power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. That also sounds like somebody in the Old Testament. So again, probably anyone in the first century would be looking into this and they'd be, see, these two guys sound an awful lot like Moses and they sound an awful lot like Elijah who are also the two prophets that show up with Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 in the transfiguration, right? So Elijah, when his enemies came against him, then fire came and consumed the enemies that came to try and take him out. Elijah spoke to the skies and the heavens shut up for three and a half years. Moses saw the waters turn to blood. Moses was the great releaser of plagues over Egypt. And so, again, anyone reading would say, well, that sounds an awful lot like these two biblical figures. We've also seen them in the New Testament as well. They appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Moses and Elijah, typically, when they show up in the Transfiguration, uh, most commentators would say they are showing up because Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, they represent the revelation of God. And they also represent the prophets of God. And they represent the faithful ones of God. Moses and Elijah were not perfect by any means, but they were faithful. They were devout. They gave their lives to the obedience of the Lord. They didn't do it perfectly, but they lived their lives sacrificially in the service of God. So they are faithful servants. They are faithful prophets. And they proclaimed and spoke what God told them to speak. And so these two witnesses in Revelation sound an awful lot like these two guys. But there's a couple of other clues given here as well. 
Because John says these two witnesses are the two olive trees and they are the two lampstands who stand in the presence of God. So Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah has a vision of heaven and he sees these olive trees in Zechariah chapter 4. So then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? These things that are all standing before the throne of God. He, the angel, replied, do you not know what they are? No, my lord, I said. That's why I just asked you in the first place. So the angel said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. So Zechariah has this vision of two olive trees that stand in the presence of God with a lampstand. We also have seen that phrase lampstand already in the book of Revelation, haven't we? Way back at the very beginning, that there were seven lampstands that were standing in the presence of God. They were standing before Jesus, and they were burning before him. And in one of those awesome moments where John just tells us clearly what some symbolism is, John tells us in Revelation 1.20 that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we talked about this back then, that the churches are in the presence of God, that we who are followers of Jesus, because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, because our sins have been removed, because we are called holy and blameless in his sight, because of what Jesus has done, that we can actually enjoy the presence of God now without worrying about lightning bolts coming down and getting us. And that was something they worried about before Jesus came. Whenever anyone sees an angel or anyone is in the presence of God in the Old Testament, the reaction is terror because they are aware of their sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. But as we are washed in Jesus' blood, as we are welcomed back into the family, we can boldly come before the throne of God. And so the lampstands are the seven churches. The the church, although here on earth, uh, Ephesians says, we are also seated with Christ in heavenly places. That although we're literally here on the earth, in the spirit, we are in his presence. We are before his throne. The seven lampstands, the churches stand before Jesus and they burn constantly and they are there because God's church is in his presence all the time. So starting to put all these pieces together then. Uh, These two witnesses could just be two literal people. This would be like a left-behind view of things. That they're just, that in the end times, there will be two literal prophets who stand up, who will have extraordinary powers, and and yeah, will look a lot like Moses or Elijah, and and they will live out their lives as two literal people. Uh, And that is, again, certainly valid and certainly possible. Certainly there are good reasons to believe that. But I think... You know, when Zechariah has this vision of, of olive trees, you know, in the presence of God, and they, they minister before the Lord, and when John has already told us in this book of Revelation that, that lampstands are the churches, then I think when we kind of put this all together, I think, and again, take this with a grain of salt, just my opinion, if you disagree with me, that's okay, uh, I think these witnesses are probably meant to represent the church, just in general, not two specific people, but are meant to represent the church. And I would just add specifically, they are meant to represent the faithful church. Because there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who go to church who don't actually walk with Jesus and don't actually seek to submit to him and follow him in any way. But these prophets, these witnesses, speak the word of the Lord and they call to repentance and they, uh, they are the, the olive branches that minister. They're anointed by God to minister and to prophesy and to declare. And so I think there's a good chance that these two witnesses are meant to represent us, hopefully. Hopefully we are the faithful church. It has been pointed out of the 
seven churches in the book of Revelation, only two of the lampstands were fully faithful churches. Only the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia had no corrections, had no major sin going on. They were the ones that got just encouragement because they were being faithful. Only two of the lampstands were truly, completely faithful churches. And so, again, take it with a grain of salt. Do some digging on your own. Uh, By all means, Google who are the two witnesses of Revelation. You'll get a world of stuff. It's not all good, but you can start to wrestle through it and sort through it. If I had to guess, I would say these witnesses are meant to represent just the church. They are meant to represent all of us who are witnesses, all of us who are faithful, all of us who declare the gospel, all of us who call people to repentance. And obviously in this story, uh, there is this imagery there that sounds a lot like Moses and Elijah, which I think could just be God's words way of saying uh, he's going to protect his church in this time, in a time of persecution, just like he did with Israel and Egypt, that the church will be sealed and protected in this time of difficulty. If you disagree with me on any of that, you're wrong, but that's okay. Moving on to verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and will overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because those two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So there is a season of ministry for these witnesses, whoever these witnesses are. Uh, They are blessed and protected. No one's allowed to touch them. They are doing what God has called them to do. But then there's a shift that happens after that, and this beast comes out from the abyss. So we talked about the abyss a couple of weeks ago, and I won't dig into all of that again. But uh, I think the abyss probably is the place that in the Old Testament they called Sheol. Uh, In the New Testament they called Hades. It often gets interpreted in English as just the grave. But there is a place uh, that that the demonic seems to dwell in and and come out of. And so it's not hell in terms of like the lake of fire, because that's a final judgment thing, and we'll get to that later in Revelation. But it seems to exist now, and it seems to be a place where, where Satan and the demonic have rain. Uh, it's also possible there's New Testament pictures about it being kind of like a prison and that those who rebelled against God in heaven are being kept in this prison until judgment day. That this, I think it could all be the same place. Either way, it is a dark place where bad things come out of. We know that much for sure from the book of Revelation. That out of this abyss came this terrible locust plague uh, that we looked at a few weeks ago. And out of the abyss comes this beast. And so in a couple of weeks we're going to get into the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. The so-called antichrist we're going to solve once and for all and forever who the antichrist definitely will be we'll nail that part down for sure Uh, but we're going to take some time to dig into that stuff Uh, we're going to see different beasts and monsters show up in the book of revelation and again that's where it gets tricky to be like literal 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 but the beast is obviously a metaphor Um, i think these are all just pictures of different things and we're not given any clues really here as to who or what this beast is other than it is something released from this dark demonic realm. So it could be a person. It could be a demonic power. Uh, In the first century, they probably would have looked at these different beasts as different aspects of Rome, the Roman Empire that was ruling the world at the time. Uh, It could just represent the world in general or the enemy in general. And I I can't help you any more than that because the text doesn't give us any more than that. Other than this beast comes out of the abyss, whether it's a person, whether it's a demonic power, and it takes out these two witnesses, but not for good. And so 
these uh, two witnesses are killed, and, and whether that's two literal people, whether that's the church, whether that's the, the prophetic, or, or whatever that might represent. And the word says that their bodies lie in the square for, for a few days, and they are in the great city, and they don't bury them, and that's just, especially in, in midi, uh, Middle Eastern ancient culture, just hugely disrespectful to let a body lay out. Just, it, is, it shows the disdain that the people of the world have for these witnesses. And, and then there's a confusing phrase in there about they're in the square of the great city, which is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, which is also where the Lord uh, died. And so what is this great city? Because, I mean, at a glance, it kind of sounds like Jerusalem, right? Because Jesus died uh, not in the square of the city. It doesn't work in that sense. But Jesus died outside of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem isn't at this time like called Sodom in Egypt. Sodom was a city that God destroyed for its sinfulness. Egypt was the empire that God took down for oppressing his people. Those are different places, and so there's, there's obviously some symbolism going on in here. But as we go through Revelation, we're going to hear that phrase, great city, over and over and over again. The great city, the great city, the great city. Later in Revelation, they make it very clear that the great city is Babylon. They call the great city Babylon. But for anyone reading it in the first century, they would have understood that to mean Rome. They would have understood that city to mean Rome. And not just the city itself, but just like you might say, or you might see in the paper, they might say, uh, Ottawa today said that the new rules for the border closings will be blah, 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 blah. And the, the city of Ottawa represents the power of the Canadian government. That is the same for Rome. Uh, and and it, even though it is a literal city, it represents the might of everything. Babylon in the Old Testament was a, an evil pagan empire that invaded Israel and, and took over and destroyed the temple. And in John's day, Rome was an evil pagan empire that had invaded and taken over. And both were centered around these capital cities, Babylon and Rome. And they were just the source in the eyes of the people of God of everything that was idolatrous, everything that was pagan, everything that was evil, everything that was corrupt. It was all about power and wealth. And so as we go through Revelation, the phrase great city is going to come up over and over and over again. And John calls that great city Babylon. But for, again, for anyone reading in the New Testament in those seven churches that this letter first came to, they would have almost certainly read that and when he's talking about Rome. He's talking about the Roman Empire with all of its evil, all of its corruption, and being the place that is killing the Christians right now. And so though, even though that doesn't quite fit in with Jesus being crucified in the city, which it says here, Jesus was crucified by Rome, right? Rome was the one that killed him. And so Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem and Rome are all different places, but I think probably that is what it is getting at. That Rome was a lot like Babylon in its evil and corruption and oppression of God people. Rome had killed Jesus. And so as these two witnesses are killed and they are shamefully left out, just lying in the street, and it's funny because the people have disdain and they don't want to bury them, but they don't realize that God is actually the one behind all of that because he's about to do something awesome that the whole world is about to see. And so as these bodies lie there, uh, there's celebration happening. 
Like, like this is how evil the, the world and the city has gotten. Like there, I remember on September 11th, there were a few pockets of Mideastern countries where they would have people cheering in the streets when September 11th happened because in their mind, their enemies had been hit in America and they were rejoicing. And as ones who were watching it happen here close to us, you're going, how can you rejoice even in the death of your enemies like that? Like that just kind of made me feel a little sick. And then a little later, Bin Laden was killed and then Americans were rejoicing in the streets. And so it's not that far-fetched to think that these people who look at the witnesses or look at the church or look at whatever that is and say, well, hey, our enemies are dead. There's even like a weird like reverse Christmas that happens, right? Where in Christmas, we give gifts to celebrate the birth of the Savior. Here, they're giving gifts to celebrate the death of these witnesses. That's how excited they are that these two witnesses have been shut down. But as is so often the case when it comes to our Lord, that is not the end of the story. Verse 11 and 12. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So if there is a rapture verse in the book of Revelation, this might be it. And I think it's the only place that it could be. But, and I say might, and I, as with many things, it's hard because we don't really know for sure. But if there is a rapture verse, this could be it. And especially if these two witnesses represent the church in general, then this could be a picture of the church being caught up to God in the clouds as Jesus comes back. And so the clearest picture we have of what we would say the, the rapture of the doctrine comes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it's very short. There's just a few verses. But Jesus would make clear in the Gospels that he was going to come down and that there would be a harvest and that he would gather those to himself. And it gets talked about in Corinthians as well. Uh, if you just want a good crystal clear picture of, of a simple definition of the doctrine, you'll find it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 18. And all it basically says is that the Lord will appear in the clouds with a loud shout and with a trumpet blast. Those who are dead Dead in Jesus, those who have, who have passed away before us, but who knew the Lord will come to life and they will be caught up to the Lord. And we who are alive will also be caught up to the Lord and we will be with the Lord again forever. That's kind of the fullness of what that says. And so, um, there are different ways that that gets looked at uh, in terms of, well, when is it going to happen exactly in an end time stuff? Like, we know it happens at the end, but when exactly? And so some are what are called pre-tribulation rapturists, and they would say that before any of the bad stuff happens, we get taken out. So again, this would be the left behind view, that before any of the, the tough stuff that Jesus talked about happens, we will be removed from the world and we will not have to go through any of it. There are also post-tribulation rapturists, and so they believe we will be on the earth through all of it. Jesus talks about when the bad stuff comes, uh, for the sake of the elect, he says, we're going to cut that season short. And so that suggests that the elect are probably going to be on the earth, that the Christians will be on the earth during these tough times, but that Jesus is going to come back at the end, and we're going to get to that in Revelation 19, that Jesus shows up on the white horse, and that's the point where we will be caught up to him, and the dead in Christ will be resurrected. And then there are some who are called mid-tribulation rapturists, and they come to that based on this passage from Revelation, that kind of halfway through, whether it's a literal three and a half years, or whether that's just a way of saying halfway through, uh, however long 
long it takes, the, the perfect seven, however long it takes to get to that point, halfway through, uh, the witnesses will be caught up to heaven and will be, uh, will be with the Lord forever at that point, and then the church will be removed from the earth from there. So all of them have some value. I, it's one of those areas of doctrine where I go, there is such little biblical evidence to help figure out that part that it's really hard to hang your hat on it. In our Mennonite Brethren Statement of Faith, they say, it's important to us that you affirm a rapture. The details of the when and how we're going to treat as a disputable matter, and we'll have some, some loving disagreement if we need to about that. But I don't think it's a hill to die on. But um, there's not a lot of verses in... in uh, uh, revelation that talk about the rapture at all. I think this is the only one that seems like it could be that, um, but it also just could be a, a resurrection. It could be something else that God is doing in this moment. And so you can wrestle through that one, have fun uh, going through that. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So we have seen things like this happen already in the book of Revelation where uh, God will do something on the earth and people will harden their hearts, right? We've talked about this a couple of times, that as the first round of judgments came out, as the seals were being broken, it says that all the people of the earth were calling out to the mountains saying, fall on us, hide us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, hide us from all the terrible stuff that God is doing right now, and, and yet they didn't acknowledge him. They didn't turn to him in any way. We also saw this more recently in the trumpet judgments, that people uh, were getting angry at God, that these judgments are coming, and yet they still wouldn't acknowledge him. They still still wouldn't turn to him. They wouldn't turn away from their sins. This one's different. What do we see different this time? This time, as judgment comes, and as this great earthquake happens, the survivors are terrified. We've seen that before. But this time, they gave glory to the God of heaven. This time, it seems that there is repentance of some kind, that they are not just terrified as we've already seen, but still hardening their hearts. They're actually glorifying God. They are worshiping him in this. And that's so hopeful to me in the book of Revelation, because again, it is a dense and heavy book, and yet there is apparently still hope that people can turn to God, even as the judgments of God are falling on the world. And God makes clear in his word, he makes clear in 2 Peter, he says that it is not his will for anyone to perish. That is not his first choice. His desire is not that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's his heartbeat. God speaks through Ezekiel the prophet and says, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I would rather they turn from their sin and live. That's ultimately the heartbeat of God. But the, the choice is offered. And, uh, and, you know, when we think about the challenges of this book, and the difficulties of revelation and the, the heaviness of judgment and wrath and all of these things. I mean, God has given us what he wants from us in his word. And the whole world has access to this book. Anybody can engage with it. And that just tells us what the standard is. The word is there and it shows us ultimately where we sin. It shows us that we are sinners and that we are in need of a savior. And when we were sinners in need of a savior, Jesus came to save us. There was nothing in God that said, let the humans figure it out on their own. God said, these people need saving. I will do the saving myself. And Jesus comes to the earth and he goes to the cross for us. And he dies for us. And he saves us from God's wrath in his death. And then he triumphs over death by his resurrection that because he lives, we also can live with him forever. 
He does all of that for us. And so as heavy as the thought of wrath and judgment and death and destruction is, like there's literally nothing more that God could have done to save us from this stuff. He has done everything he could possibly do except force us to do it. He has made it available. He has set the gospel before everybody. And so I, I grieve as I read this book, and I think of what would that be like in, in a terrible earthquake? What would it be like when, if waters literally did turn to blood, or if that just means a terrible time is coming, and, and what is it going to be when Jesus says the world enters into like the labor pains before the new creation can come? And Jesus said this will be the worst time the world has ever seen. They have never seen anything like it before, and will never see anything like it again. We grieve that, but it doesn't take anything away from the goodness and the justice of God, because he has given us every opportunity to turn away. He has given us the full solution to avoid any of this. And part of our job, like those two witnesses, part of our job as the faithful church is to make sure the people around us know that there is a way to come back to God. There is a way to get our sins forgiven. There is a way to walk with him again. Verse 15, almost done. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. Remember the trumpets? We haven't touched those for a while. Uh, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. We've been waiting on the seventh trumpet for a while. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So we had gone through six trumpets already, and all of them had to do with judgments that were coming on the earth. And then, as Revelation does, uh, it tends to jump around a little bit in terms of the timeline. It doesn't seem to be a really super crystal clear, linear, step-by-step walk through things. And so we've been waiting for the seventh trumpet. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. And as the seventh trumpet blasts, interestingly, as we've been kind of cringing and waiting for the final judgment... Uh, it actually doesn't go into judgment right away. It goes into worship. The seventh angel comes and worship is released, not judgment. Now, there are more judgments to come, so let's not get too excited. But in this moment, it releases worship. The worship of heaven comes. And they are acknowledging in heaven that the kingdoms of this world are now the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And that's a beautiful part of Handel's Messiah, which they play often at Christmas time, where they sing that and they sing it over and over and over again. The kingdoms of this world have have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know that part? It goes over and over and over. They sing forever and ever and ever and ever, and they sing it forever. They just never stop singing about how the kingdoms of earth now belong to God. And so, as we've said with Revelation, there seems to be at times perhaps some time hopping that is going around, because we know in the time we live in, although everything is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, we know that not every nation is devoted to Jesus Christ. And I would argue that no nation is fully devoted to Jesus Christ, although there are people in each nation that are. And so this might be a song uh, that's coming to us from the very, very end, when, when all the redemption work has happened. It could be a prophetic song about this is coming uh, as well, that this is something that hasn't happened yet, but this is what our hope is leaning into. One more song, verse 17 and 18, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. 
The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Judgment day has arrived. Judgment day is coming. And so we know, again, we have not been there yet. We have not seen judgment day yet. So this is probably uh, sort of a futuristic song or a song that is at least prophesying about the future that is to come. But it's so interesting. Ben Clausen preached on this a few weeks ago, or a few years ago, I mean, um, Um, that like heaven is worshiping. Heaven is grateful as these judgments are coming. Heaven is actually excited about these judgments that are coming. And and I don't believe it's because they don't have any compassion in heaven or they don't care about the difficulties of earth, but it's worth acknowledging that, that heaven is thankful. They are grateful that God is now finally, fully, ultimately dealing with the sin of the earth. And, And the nations were angry, but God's wrath is coming ultimately to set it right. And the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding and also punishing. And so... So for those of us who have received the gift that God has given, then as we live out our lives here on earth, Jesus talked an awful lot about reward. He said, live towards your eternal reward. You can live a comfortable life here on earth and get your reward here on earth. That, that comfort you get, the praise and applause that you get, uh, the, the, the acknowledgement that you get in this life, that's your reward if you want it. You can have it and that will be the fullness of your reward. But if you deny that here on earth, there is better reward in heaven. And Jesus said, don't build up treasure for yourselves here on earth. Here on earth, everything is temporary, including our treasure. The, the treasure we build up in heaven through our devotion through our obedience, that is eternal. And we're told over and over again, live your life to your eternal reward. Don't worry so much about your earthly reward. Live your life in such a way to please the Lord that as we, as we read through the New Testament, there are crowns apparently available to us. There are seats of honor available to us and they will last forever. All the acknowledgement you could possibly get, every pat on the back and applause you could get in this life is ultimately temporary. But live towards the acknowledgement of heaven. Live towards the eternal reward that waits for you there. However long, if we live to be 120 here on this earth, which is about as long as a human being can possibly live, it's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Most of our existence will be spent in eternity. So let's not waste our reward here on earth now for things that are just fleeting and temporary. We live towards our eternal reward. Paul wrote that our light and momentary troubles here on earth are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Like live towards eternity and be aware of judgment. And worship team, you can come on up as we get ready to wrap up. That as judgment day comes... For those of us whose sins have been forgiven, we're not being judged on our sins. We'll be judged based on the level of our reward. And for those whose sins haven't been forgiven, that is not the blessing that is coming for them. And so, again, as we struggle with the tough stuff of justice and wrath and and discipline and and all of these things, uh, we are reminded yet again that if God doesn't deal with the evil of this world, then he is not good. In his goodness, he has to make creation good again. He has to restore it to goodness or else he isn't good. And if he doesn't deal with sin and acknowledge it and punish it, then he can't call himself just either. And and we know over and over in his word that God calls himself good and he calls himself just. And in his goodness and in his justice, he must make the world right. He has to do that. And again, as difficult as it is to think about these things coming on the world, he 
And Jesus has given everybody every opportunity to be spared from it. And we who follow after Jesus, we know that we have. The Bible says when you say yes to Jesus, the wrath of God is removed. That comes off of you. Your sins have been forgiven. There's nothing left to punish uh, in terms of the judgment of God. That has already happened to Jesus on the cross, and we are set free. And so we rejoice in that. And yet, as we think about uh, thriving this year, this year 2021, how do we thrive in Jesus regardless of our circumstance? Part of it is this. Uh, we will thrive when we witness boldly, as these witnesses do in this chapter. We will thrive when we acknowledge that sin is sin, that we're not afraid to call it that, that we are not afraid to sit with someone and say, I am worried about the sin in your life, that we are not afraid to prophesy, to testify, to share Jesus with others. We'll actually thrive when we do that, because we'll actually be right where Jesus has called us to be. And we will thrive as well when we live towards our heavenly reward, when we stop focusing entirely on this life as if this is everything that God has for us. This world we live in, there are wonderful blessings here, but this is not the best that God has to offer. There is an eternity with him promised to us. And so we acknowledge the blessings that we have here. We are grateful for them towards our eternal reward. We want to live a life of obedience, a life of worship, a life of sacrifice when needed, a life of devotion. And as we do that, we will thrive because there is peace there where we say, you know what? What happens in this life happens. If I get something, that's wonderful. If I don't get it, that's okay. That's not what this life is about. This life is about living to the glory of God and obedience to Him, loving and serving others and reminding ourselves and telling others around us that Jesus has offered a way back to him. And so we're going to sing a song now that speaks to this, that, that celebrates what Jesus has done. Uh, if you are walking with the Lord now, this is just a beautiful worship song. If you don't know the Lord, listen to the words of this song. This is the blessing that is offered to all of us because he loved us that much. So crank up the volume, get ready to sing with us, and then we'll close with prayer after this.